This episode of The Taylor Stevens Show is brought to you by listeners, readers, and patrons. If you'd like to learn how to support this podcast, please visit www.patreon.com slash taylorstevens. Taylor Stevens, the New York Times bestselling and award-winning author of kick-ass international thrillers, and this is The Taylor Stevens Show with my good friend Steve Campbell, where we are kicking writing in the butt one word at a time. And last week, Taylor, there were lots of people that wanted to kick me in the butt one word at a time for stopping you in the middle of, we were 90 words into like 152 words of the first go round the first look at this section of the opening of the information is chapter one not the information the innocent, it's the innocent. Yeah. and um so we had a bit of a cliffhanger ending to the show last week and we're going to instead of any chit chat we're just going to get right back to it um so take it away okay so where we left off we were 90 words into the opening sequence of chapter one and we had our, I was like, okay, we're 90 words in. We've already got character in motion. We already know who, where, and now we've got why. And those 90 words in, we don't actually know who the who is. There's not been any names said, no character introductions or anything like that. We just dropped right into a character's head. He, it's like we opened our eyes and we were just experiencing it in real time, whatever he was going through. But we do know that something has happened. We know that something is happening. We've started in the midst of things in Meteoress. And all of that combined, it gives us a hook into our brain. So it's plunged us into action as it's happening. We just don't know what, right? And we want to know what those things are. And right before we closed off last week, The point that I was making is that is storycraft, where you're feeding this stream of information, right? And you're feeding just enough in small doses that as a reader, you just want to get to the next one. You're not being info dumped on and you're raising all these questions inside the reader's head. And when it's done right like that, then there's this sense of, well, I'm in good hands and all of these questions are going to be answered. Let me read on. Right. And so that leads to the next part in this sequence where it says he'd sat in the dark, rigid on the edge of the bed, searching his way through possibilities until certain there was really only one option. He'd pick up the handset once more and place the call to Morocco. So this is the middle of the, it's the second paragraph, but it's not the beginning of the second paragraph. We're in the middle-ish of the second paragraph, and it's now swinging us into the past because we're speaking in the past tense of what brought him here. And it's giving us a small glimpse of that chain of events that, that got us to this point. And that now sets the stakes because we understand with just this limited amount of information that the who— in this scene is not in control of the desired outcome. Excuse me, this paragraph also tells us that the place that he called Morocco is the same place his body is in now, right? So in just that tiny bit of information, 
we understand that because it opens with him getting off the plane, right? So we know, and it tells us it's in Casablanca, Morocco. It's in the head, the header of the chapter. So now we know, you know, he's he's come this journey, and what brought him to this journey was he'd sat in the dark, you know, he'd gotten some news, this long-awaited news that had come without warning, and he makes this call to Morocco, and this leads us to the payoff. I need a favor. So that is italicized in the text as it's spoken, it's out, it's dialogue, but because it's in his thoughts, it's, there's no anything around it. There's no dialogue tags or anything. It's just, he placed the call to Morocco, I need a favor. And that line right there, I need a favor, that's need, that's want, that's desire, that's fear, that's desperation. And from all of this, we understand that not only is who not in control of desired outcome, but that the one person who can give him this desired outcome would be doing it out of goodwill. It's not an obligation. It's not something that he can count on. And so that adds a layer to the existing stakes. Those had been his only words. No introduction, no explanation, only the plea. And in that sentence, the word plea is carrying all the weight because it adds that sense of desperation. If there's any question of whether I need a favor was something else, we know that it's a plea. And it also tells us that there is familiarity. There's a history between these two characters because you don't pick up a phone and say, I need a favor if you're not expecting the person on the other end of the line to recognize your voice or caller ID as it may be, which I'm going to totally sidetrack here and I'm going to rant for a second about a pet peeve of mine. (laughs) (laughs) And it happens. I I don't know if it happens in writing in, in the written form, but I see it in movies all the time where the character will pick up the phone and they'll say, Hey, it's me. And that makes me that makes me crazy because a if they recognize your voice, then saying it's me is redundant. If they don't recognize your voice, saying it's me is stupid because how are they gonna know who you are? So why why do we do that? I don't know. Okay, rant over. I got to back up here. I just pulled everybody out of the mood. Okay, so those had been his only words. No introduction, no explanation, only the plea. Tell me, she said. And that sentence right there, tell me, she said, that is gold. That is that is the power of almost this entire scene. Because every word in that one sentence or two clause, whatever it is, I don't know grammar. Every word is carrying far more weight than it would appear to on the surface. And because in spite of there being no emotionary motion generating words in that combined, those four words, this line in its entirety is pure emotion. And here's why. The first part of it, tell me, It evokes kindness, openness, willingness. It establishes that there's a line of trust between these two speakers. They're not enemies. And yet there's no assumption that this person, this one option that the who has, will do the thing that gets the desired outcome. So it's 
tell me, plain, just like that, is establishing the relationship right there. I need a favor. Tell me. I'll do Like, I, what can I do for you? You know, the next part of this that is it, it blows my brain just that I understood these things all the way back then is the word she'd she had she'd. OK, there's two reasons for this. One is she in general is a total break from expectations. So even now, after all these years of female leads, it's still a reversal in a setup like this and in a genre like this that you open with a male character who needs a desired outcome, something beyond what he can create for himself, who only knows one person who can give that to him, and he turns to a woman. That right there, there's power in using the word she. And it might have been different if this character, this male character, the who, had been set up or established as maybe not capable of doing things for himself. But that is not implied at all in any of this opening paragraph. It's somebody who has the confidence to go, you know, I'm coming to you. Like, he makes decisions. He's in a foreign country. This is not, you know, somebody who's helpless, right? The second reason is that readers who've already read the first book in this series, they're going to know that this she being spoken of here is Monroe. It's not like it's any big secret who we're talking about here. And readers who are new to this story, new to the series and for whom like this is their first story, they're going to assume that this character here is the character that was introduced in the prologue. And I don't remember off the top of my head if she's named in the prologue, but either way, it doesn't matter because if she is, she's not named here. And here's the key that this turns on. To have named her here would have killed this entire scene. Because it's the fact that she's not named and that we still don't know the name of the who that gives this whole scene its opening power. Because once you name a thing, okay, how do I put this? Let's say that you have just read online an anonymous negative review about yourself or somebody you have no idea who they are is bad mouthing you and trash talking you behind your back, right? Not the not knowing the anonymity of where this is coming from means it could be anybody. And it, it, it makes it a much bigger thing. And then let's say hypothetically that you discover that this anonymous person is the neighbor who lives three down, three doors down the block. Now, all of a sudden, you have a face, you have a name, you know his lifestyle, you know what he looks like, you know his weaknesses, you know all this stuff about him, and it just, like, pulls all the air out of it. And the, the you can be mad at him, but now it's a specific kind of mad. It's a focused mad. It's not just this vast, anywhere, big, huge thing. And by not naming this character of whom this scene is now, he's, he's coming to her as a supplicant. By not naming her, it creates this air of mystery or power. It's bizarre. I don't know why it works the way that it works. All I know is that by not naming that character, and we know who she is. 
there's no question about who we're talking about. The very fact that we're not naming her is what gives this entire thing its punch. And it's also important to know in wrapped in with all of this not naming and not knowing who these people are, not really understanding why they're here or what's happening yet, that because we have a sense of place, because we know that something's happening, we are fully anchored. We know where the characters are in time and space. We know we're here because we need something. So we're not lost. So if we didn't have those things, if it was just random information being thrown at us or we're just thrust in a situation and it moves too fast with all kinds of um, terminology or uh, things that like, if you try to do the same thing while you are scene setting in a world that doesn't exist, like one that you're conjuring up as you go, then it's not going to work because it's too much that we don't know. But this scene takes place in our real world, in a real place. And so by, by grounding it in a sense that we know all the real things, it gives us room to not name all the other things. So it's not like you could take the same opening and just apply it anywhere. And some things are situational and this works in context. And that's part of that mesh that I'm talking about where writing and storytelling go hand in hand. But in this particular circumstance, because we do have a sense of place and we're not lost and we're grounded and we're anchored, not giving us all that information straight up, this is pacing, right? And the setup as it is, the, the pacing as we're, we're like, this is setting the pace for what's to come. It gives the, the story room to breathe. It gives us room to grow. We don't have to rush. We don't have to cram information in here just because it, we're, we're hurried that if we don't explain it, then they're not going to understand. We, we have the sense that we're in the hands of someone who knows what they're doing. Our questions are going to be answered we can just keep reading, right? So all of that is part of the context, is part of that mesh of storycraft and, and writing craft, right? So the next phrase in this is, I'm coming to you. That's what he says to her. And with that, we nudge the stakes higher, just a little bit. It's not like we even know what the stakes are yet, but what we know is that whatever it is that the who in this scene needs, it's so big that he doesn't want to say it over the phone. He's going to fly across the ocean to ask it in person. And we know that this is, he's asking it of this person because they're the only person that can give him the desired outcome, what it is that he needs. And that is how that scene, that little segment ends. And those are my notes for our first breakdown. Those were my thoughts as I was reading it. And it's what I would do if I was taking somebody else's material and breaking down what works and what doesn't in it. Then we already know that this scene works for me because I'm like, about all the dopamine centers in my brain. Let me jump in here. Yeah. And um, you had you mentioned when you got to the, the sentence, tell me, she'd said, yeah. and how powerful that was. And I... We talked about this, and we we talked about what we were doing, and you said it was the beginning of chapter one, so I started reading through chapter one um, while we were talking, but not while we were recording, but while we were talking. Ooh, and you almost got in trouble. Yes, thank you. <laughs> and um, 
So I'm reading through. It's like, I don't remember. I don't remember. I don't remember. I remember exactly where I was when I read that line, tell me she'd said. That was, it was so jarring to me. And this was December of 2011. I looked up the publication date. It was eight and a half years ago when I saw that line right here. I remembered exactly where I was when I read it eight and a half years ago. That's crazy. And I know you guys can't tell when I'm talking about all this stuff. It sounds like I'm so confident. And in the moment I am because I'm just blathering, right? I'm telling you, there's no filter. I'm just telling you what I think. But afterwards, when it's all over, I'm like, oh, God, did I just overstep? Did I just step in it? You know, did I just like spout off? I I don't I don't know if other people are going to see it the same way that I do. So it's really interesting to me. I didn't know that Steve was going to tell me that. I was like, oh, cool. That's that's great. I'm not the only one that sees this then. Okay, great. Awesome. Mm -hmm. All right. So that was the first one, right? That was the first the Look, first breakdown. The, 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 yeah. yeah, the first the first breakdown. So what's next? Okay, so the second breakdown that I want to do is over the years, I have talked about how there's writing in their story. And earlier, as we were doing the first episode of this segment series, I'd mentioned how um, there's, I think I did, I don't know, uh, there's underwriting in story, there are different specific issues. Um, If I didn't mention it, I'm going to do it all again here. So we know like from previous tutorials that, uh, and especially one that I attempted to do on Hack the Craft that I might, I'll probably end up having to do again. But after I've really thought about how the writing, the actual craft writing process breaks down. And I believe, and I could still be proven wrong, but I believe that every single writing issue and these are craft issues, not storytelling issues, craft issues, can fall under one of three legs. The first is perspective. And um, we've talked about that in terms of uh, first-person shooter versus movie. Like, And it, it ultimately boils down to the way we write things, whether we're seeing things through the eyes of the character as they're happening, or if we're trying to write what we see in our heads and we're observing the character we observe the character and we're trying to describe what the character is doing versus seeing things through the eyes of the character and the character is describing what they see. It's it's a perspective issue. Are we looking at them or are we looking through them, right? So the first is that. The second is anchoring. And anchoring has to do with um, when the the body, the character's bodies, the, the placement of things sort of become detached from the setting itself. We like when characters exit one door and then show up somewhere else, like they got teletransported. Um, that's an anchoring issue because you're not grounded. You're not connected. Anchoring means that we always know where the characters are in time and space, where their bodies are and where those bodies are in relation to everything else around them. The elements that we've put on the page, because the only way the reader knows is through the words on the page. And we have to provide those visual cues to make sure those characters are grounded and anchored. And the third one is flow, which is uh, it's similar to anchoring. It's a different kind of grounding, and it has to do with the information that's in the author's head that fails to make it to the page. And we're not talking about typos or glitches or those types of things. It's when the char- the author knows something about a character that's important, but never doesn't realize they haven't conveyed that information to the reader. Or it's, it's a logic flow issue. The, the character did this, and then they did this, but the because part of it somehow gets 
disconnected and we don't understand the motivations or how the two different actions are connected, that's a flow issue. So that's the writing side of it. And then on the story side of it, um, because of having like the, the whole hack the craft process of trying to figure out that foundation, the, the framework and stuff has really forced me to think about, well, can story issues be broken down into, this, into similar categories like that as well? And I believe that they can. And right now, and this is still a work in progress, I believe that they can, all story issues can be broken down into character, conflict, and plot. So um, where the story is going to fall apart is if the characters aren't real, the motivations aren't solid, what have you, um, it's going to fall apart when there's no real conflict and it's going to start feeling episodic and um, the the motive, you know, it's not clear what we're really after uh, or why we should care. That's all going to fall under conflict. And then lastly, there's the plot, you know, does, does it all hold together? Does it make sense? And so I think that all story issues can ultimately fall under the, those three lines. So what I want to do now is going, go back and read it again. And I want to look at that opening sequence to see if it's hitting all the notes. Like, is it failing to, to deliver on any of these legs that, that fall under both story and writing. And granted, this is a very small segment and you can't fully judge a segment, you know, it's not self-contained, right? So some of this has to be a guess, but we're just gonna look at it, right? So here it is again. At last, the crowd moved forward. He picked up the duffel bag and slipped the strap over his shoulder. Aching and nauseous, he placed one deliberate foot in front of the other, part of the collective escape from transatlantic captivity, down the aisle, out the belly of the plane, along the jetway, and through the sunlit terminals of Mohammed V5 Airport. Three days of little sleep had brought him here, three days and three lifetimes since that call in the wee hours had, without warning, provided long-awaited news. He'd sat in the dark, rigid on the edge of the bed, searching his way through possibilities until certain there was really only one option— he picked up the handset once more and placed the call to Morocco. I need a favor. Those had been his only words. No introduction, no explanation, only the plea. Tell me, she'd said, I'm coming to you. So let's look at this for perspective. From the opening sequence, we are in the point of view character's head. We don't know who he is, but we are seeing as he sees. We're experiencing as he experiences, and we're being shown each action in the order that it happens, even in the flashback. So nothing is out of sequence in terms of how he would have experienced it. So perspective, check. All right, let's look at anchoring. In anchoring, in this segment, we are fully tethered to time and space. There's, there are no disembodied voices. There's no bodies lost within the void. We are grounded in, in places where we let go. For example, when we flash back to three days of little sleep, we know that he's in the sunlit terminals of the airport, right? We don't then start up. Well, we don't know how it starts up because it doesn't continue past that with this segment. But I tell you, we don't start up somewhere else. He's right back where we left him. So his body is anchored. And even in... The, the flashback, when the little dialogue that we have, there is no question of who's speaking. There's no disembodied voices. It just, it's just there, one after the other. So we tick the anchoring box. Okay, flow. This is a really small segment. So it's not fair to judge it on flow issues because that is something you would, it really wouldn't turn up until you've got, 
more to work with, I think. that That's how I feel about it. But with the little that we do have, it does seem like all the pieces there are there. We don't find anything jarring. Nothing's leaving us going, wait, did I miss something? And the logic thought process, it's flowing seamlessly from one thought to the next to the next. And anything that we don't know, it feels deliberate. Like that's going to eventually be revealed. It doesn't feel like, wait, did I miss something? So for now, being that this is such a small amount of information, we're just going to go ahead and tick that flow box. So character. We're half a page into the story, and we have a sense of who this character is. We don't know who he is, but we have a sense of this character because we feel we know that he needs something, right? We know that we have a sense of this desperate want. And we also have a sense of the relationship between this character and the one that he's spoken to on the phone. There's so much we don't know at all. So conflict. Again, this is a small segment. So it's hard to just run this through that filter just in and of itself. But even in this small amount of text, we already begin to feel the conflict. He wants something, he needs it, it's a huge thing, the only way to get it is by asking a favor, and even if the person on the other side of the phone is warm to being asked, he's not sure enough in the response to risk asking it over the phone. He's gotta go see her and ask her face to face. That's conflict. And it's not so much interpersonal conflict, it is, inner conflict. And conflict doesn't have to be war. It doesn't have to be uh, people fighting with each other. It can be this desire, this unfulfilled desire, inner conflict, inner struggle. It all counts as conflict, but there has to be something unfulfilled, right? Like somebody has to want something, need something, escape from something, whatever. That's conflict. And that exists here in this small segment. A plot. What about plot? All right, we have no idea what's happening exactly, but we know something is happening. And we know that something has happened. And we know that whatever it is that's put events into motion, that something more is going to happen. So even though we don't have a sense of the story, the whole story and plot, what we have been given in the plot category is we've been given pacing and we've been given character in motion. And so when we run it through this filter of the three legs, we, we don't, well, not three legs, the three legs for story, three legs for, for, uh, for writing, but those are the foundational, fine, foundational issues. And when we run this little tiny segment through those, it does seem to hit all the notes. So it doesn't seem like there's something missing and it doesn't seem like there's something failing. It's just small and it's not the full picture yet. But based on that small segment, we can have the confidence that the full picture is yet to come. And that is breakdown number two. So breakdown number three will have to be on the next episode. And that's where I want to run this material through the five things or whatever it was um, tutorial that I did about how every chapter opening needs to have these things and needs to have them in this order. And I have no idea if it's going to work or not. And I'm nervous about it, but that's going to be next week. Yeah, and I believe that those those episodes, it was either 185 or 186, if you want to prep ahead of time to uh, 
Yeah, Sanity you want to go Jack back and Taylor listen to these. them. Yes. Because yeah. <laughs> I'll just be working off, cribbing off my notes. So if you want to actually go back and listen to me blather, then you can see if I'm like cheating here and going easier on myself than I should be. But anyway, that'll be next week. Okay. So in, I, I want to circle all the way back to the beginning of, the, of last week's episode. Yeah. When you were talking about the idea of you were reading the story and you were so happy with it that you just closed it and you didn't want to go back because I, don't know if I would say happy with it. I would well, just I say mean, it was hitting all lighting up all the, Oh my God, this is pleasurable sensors in my brain. And I, I, I can remember times when I was reading say a lengthy series and you get to the book that you know is the last book and you desperately want to read it, but once you've read it, it's over. The story is over. <laughs> and so I don't read it. I just set it aside, or I might read a little bit, and I might, it, it's the kind of thing that I want to make it last. And I, I, that's what I was thinking about when you were talking about the whole idea of I read this and I liked it so much that I didn't want to read any more because I thought only something bad could happen. Well, yeah, that's not what you said. Bad. Only something no, no, bad. But, but yeah, no, it's true. That's because I mean, you'd have to read the whole post that I put up about it to really fully understand where I was coming from with that. But yes, I did not want to face it being any less than this because feeling good about my work and, and in this particular book that comes on two separate levels uh, is such a rare experience for me that I didn't want to ruin it. I wanted to help hold on to it and just, just feel good and not have to face feeling bad, which I'm, it's going to happen. I'm going to read the, going to get into further into this book and I'm be like, Ugh, okay, I would have done this differently. I would have done that differently. But I, I mean, if I, aside from some few quibbles over word choices and stuff, this just was like, I don't know who this person was, but I want to be them. <laughs> Whoever wrote this. <laughs> All right. So now I want to talk to listeners out there. If if you gasped when you heard Taylor talk about how much she enjoyed her own writing, raise your hand. Because I'm totally raising my hand right now. I'm raising and, my hand right now. <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> that, was, that was so stunning to me. That's a first on the Taylor Stevens show. <laughs> it might be a first in forever. That would be the only time. <laughs> All right, so looking forward to next week's episode where we wrap up this three-part series by going through yet another uh, lens, to another way of, of looking at this 152 words that we will have thoroughly dissected by the end of uh, three episodes. So thank you guys so much for listening. We will be back in your ear again next Tuesday. Thanks for being here, guys. We'll see you next week. <laughs>